with me to Matthew 24. So we continue to make our way through Matthew's Gospel. It's interesting, the background on that last slide that we were reading, what is unseen. A lot of times you couldn't see what was unseen there. It's an act of faith just to read that slide. Okay, a question for you this morning. What do these movies have in common? Jeannie loves this part. Planet of the Apes, The Usual Suspect, The Sixth Sense, The Empire Strikes Back. What do they all have in common? They all have surprise endings. They all have shocking endings. Now, if you're one of those people who, who if, if, you're, if people are talking about a movie, you plug your ears and, and, and you know, say la 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 so that you won't hear the ending, you might want to rethink that strategy. The study of two researchers at the University of California in San Diego found that contrary to popular wisdom, knowing the ending actually enhances your experience and you enjoy it more. The study ran three experiments based on 12 short suspense stories and found that the majority of participants enjoyed the spoiled versions more. As one of the researchers wrote, it could be that once you know how the story turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information and you can focus on the deeper understanding of the story. Think about it for a minute. Once you know that Darth Vader is Luke's father, and you watch it a second time, don't you look for those nuances? Don't you look for those clues? Doesn't the story, some parts of the story, make more sense? In other words, you begin to focus on the deeper understanding of the story. I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus mets out the end of human history in Matthew 24. He's telling us the end of the story. Two weeks ago, we began to look at Jesus' response to his, to his disciples when he told them that this grand temple that they were exiting for the last time would, would not stand but, but would be raised to the ground, not one stone standing on another. And they approached him, if you remember later that night, and they asked him, tell us when, T- give us the signs. And so Jesus Lays it out. Jesus starts, if you look in verse 3 of chapter 24, Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all the nations for my namesake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Pause there. Professor Daniel Doriani writes, When Jesus gives instruction about future events, his purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity or answer all of our speculative questions. Instead, his purpose is to protect and guide and instruct his people. Jesus gave relatively little attention to the question, when? And much towards the question, how shall we live faithfully? That's why Jesus is giving us Matthew 24. How can we live faithfully in this time? Two weeks ago, we began to look at this section and and how Jesus instructs us to live faithfully between his two advents. And the first thing that we noticed was we have to have a healthy dose of not yet. A healthy dose of not yet. In other words, this period in between his advents is a period of waiting. We wait. Throughout the Olivet Discourse, Jesus describes a lot of disconcerting activity that we just read here. And we'll read some more. A lot of disconcerting activity. Yet, he says, don't be alarmed. It's not yet. Brothers and sisters, we have to have a healthy dose of not yet coursing through our spiritual veins. That's what he wants so that we can have our heads about us when others are losing theirs, as Rudyard Kipling put it. The predominant Christian posture now is one of waiting. And this waiting, he says, sculpts us, right? Jim uh, Richard Haddix wrote, Second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us will ever encounter. As we said last week, two weeks ago, most of us here will not encounter the type of suffering and persecution that we read about or that, or that great sermon illustrations are made of. But you will encounter waiting. And it does sculpt you. The second sign that Jesus tells us is described here is gospel growth. That's what, that's what we keyed in on in, in verse 14. You can look at your scriptures there. And, and he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. As we saw Again, two weeks ago, this has been happening for the last 2,000 years. The gospel has just been growing from this little dot on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean throughout the whole world. This gospel that scripture says is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block and a foolishness to the whole world. Yet, it grows. It cannot be stopped. 
This gospel that says that, that God came down into the world and became man, that crazy notion has been growing. This crazy notion that, that we can't make it to heaven on our own. We can't be good enough. That's crazy. Worldly wisdom says, no, I'm good. I'm good enough. But the gospel says, no, you're not. You need somebody to be good for you. And that is what Jesus came and lived the perfect life to do. This crazy notion, this crazy notion that we need forgiveness for our sins. We have it in our minds that we can forgive, we can be forgiven on our own. But God said, the gospel says, no, you need a substitute. You need somebody to, to actually take the penalty for your sins to be forgiven. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. This crazy notion that the gospel, that this person rose from the dead, actually dead, rose to live again. That's crazy. But that's what it says in the gospel. He rose again on the third day. And he conquered our sin. And he conquered Satan. Through that powerful resurrection. That crazy gospel has been growing leaps and bounds for 2,000 years. And that is crazy. But the deeper understanding that Jesus wants us to see here is the gospel growth comes with false, false prophets who want to tempt us off the path. This gospel growth comes with cultural lawlessness that will tempt us to stop walking on the path. This, this gospel growth comes with suffering that will tempt us to forsake the path. That's what he says in verse 9, when they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. You'll be hated for everybody. If you are out there actually sharing the gospel that I just described, if you're actually speaking it, if you're actually explaining it in a, even in a winsome way to people, you will be hated by certain people. You're offering life and they hate you for it. Suffering goes hand in hand with following Christ. Jesus himself said, no servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they, they'll persecute you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If you call yourself a Christian, there are a certain modicum of people in this world, in your circles, that will not like you. In other words, our life is to kind of mirror Jesus's, isn't it? Even in the intensification at the very end. Jesus' life, he was, he was persecuted and, 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 and uh, hated by people throughout his three-year ministry. But at the very end, the persecution got pretty intense. And that is what 15 through 22 tells us. The period right before he returns, there will be intense suffering. Look with me at starting in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. We'll pause there. We've come to perhaps the most difficult and most enigmatic portion of Scripture in all of Matthew's Gospel. If you remember, two weeks ago I set... Uh, several principles of apocalyptic literature, how to approach apocalyptic literature. And I'm going to employ them, one of them right here. And that is humility, humility, humility. And say, I don't know exactly what is meant here. I don't know exactly what is meant here. I have some ideas, and you'll hear them in a minute. But you might have some ideas too. And if you have ideas, I would love to hear what you have to say after church. I really would. But this is a very enigmatic text. The plain reading of this text tells us a few details. Matthew is obviously referencing Daniel, the book of Daniel. Specifically, Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11 where there's a prophecy of a, of a prince who will come and destroy. He's also referencing a holy place. This could either mean Jerusalem, or maybe even the Holy of the Holies in the temple. Finally, he's, he's describing some pretty intense suffering here. So intense that he, he, is, he is counseling people to flee. It's so bad. He says in verse 21 that this suffering is such that has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Some pretty intense suffering. In verse 34, Jesus tells us that these things will happen in the lifetime of the people he's speaking to. This generation shall not pass until these things come to fruition. All of these descriptions, all of what Jesus says here, seems to indicate he is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. All this seems to be pointing us towards that time within the generation of the people that are listening to him. The parallel passage in Luke confirms this by saying, Jesus, was, when he was speaking these words in, in, uh, in, in Luke, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he's being very specific. So, He's obviously talking about Jerusalem here. And in 70 AD, the Roman government just got fed up to here with the Jewish revolts that were going on. Year after year after year. Pushing back, pushing back, pushing back, pushing back. If you've ever had a a child who you tell them a rule and instantly they push back, push back, push back, push back. You get the idea. You get to a point where you go, 
I don't know if I can take this anymore. And that's what the Roman government did. We can't take this anymore. So they sent General Vespasian and then finally General Titus to Jerusalem and said, level it. And they did a a two-year siege on Jerusalem, the city itself, and the suffering and starvation that went on within that city in that period of time is epic. And we know how epic it is because it was written about by the Jewish historian Josephus. We have first-hand accounts there. He tells us that whole families died in their houses. He tells us that the bodies were piled up in the streets. He tells us that people dropped dead in the streets of starvation, of starvation and were never buried. The starvation was so severe, Josephus tells us, that one story of a woman who killed, roasted, and ate her own suckling child. When the walls were finally breached, Josephus tells us that the scene, the Roman soldiers, and these are weathered soldiers who had seen it all. When they breached the walls and they went in, he writes, quote, they stood in horror at the sight that greeted them. 1.1 million dead. Another 97,000 taken away into slavery. The temple literally leveled to the ground. Not one stone upon another. You know why there wasn't one stone literally upon another? It's because when they leveled the temple and burned it, the, the gold that was all over the temple melted in between the stones and the, and the Roman soldiers pried them apart, separated them so they could get at the gold. Literally not one stone upon another. General Titus was truly an abomination that caused desolation. But I want to evoke another principle from two weeks ago, if you remember. Apocalyptic literature many, has, many times has multiple events in mind. And if you remember, I described him as standing with a mountain peak in front of you. But if you take three steps aside, you see that it's not one mountain peak. There's actually several mountain peaks that you can't see. And apocalyptic literature is many times like that. You see one event, but you see as, as redemptive history goes on that, oh, it, it meant that event and that event. Just like the Old Testament prophets foresaw many times one advent, but then we see them speaking of another advent. I think that's what ha- what's happening here. Daniel Doriani writes in his commentary, in this passage, Jesus predicts specific events that will occur between his resurrection and Rome's sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That same prediction appears to point beyond that period and describe the days before his return in verse 27 and verse 30. This makes sense if the fall of Jerusalem foreshadows or prefigures or is a prototype of a type of suffering we will endure. He goes on and says, just as a dress rehearsal resembles the play itself, but is not quite the play, the fall of Jerusalem was a major event in and of itself, 
yet it is a rehearsal or foreshadow of another event not yet taken place. Therefore, even though Jesus is telling his disciples about the fall of Jerusalem, his terms also seem to fit the end of the world as we know it. To be more precise, the fall of Jerusalem was the last day for many who lived in Judea. Yet it is also a template of a cataclysmic day of Christ's return. Scripture seems to point to an intense suffering right before Christ returns. Right before Christ returns, there seems to be an intense period of tribulation. We see that in the book of Daniel in chapter 4 with the fourth beast and the little horn describing the Antichrist that is given, uh, given authority for a time where the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half. We see that in Second Thessalonians 2 where the great tribulation involves this man of lawlessness or this Antichrist. Paul writes, therefore, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And this same theme shows up in Revelation 13, this intense uh, intensification of suffering right before Christ comes back through the beast rising out of the sea. It says they're allowed to make war against the saints. Humility, humility, humility. I could be wrong, but it seems to me, in Scripture, as I understand it, what is being said is the sack of Rome, a sack of Jerusalem, is also a foreshadowing of a terrible time of suffering for God's elect. Such has been not been from the beginning of the world until now. Now, Jesus just doesn't tell us this to satisfy our curiosity. He doesn't tell us this to give us some insider trading knowledge, this Gnostic knowledge that we can then, then covet and hold on to. He tells us this so that he can mature us, so that we can be faithful in this time. His purpose, again, is to protect and guide and instruct us. So I want to recall and call you back to two weeks ago when we talked about the five R's of suffering. What do suffering do? What does suffering do in the Christian life? What does suffering do in the Christian church? If you remember, suffering is a reminder for us of what Christ went through. Many times when I am just with a person who is suffering physically, I will bring this up to that person. You can actually begin to, to understand, maybe in a new way, what Christ went through for you, through your suffering. It reminds us of what Christ went through for us. It also makes us reliant on Christ. Many times we get to a point in our life, it, it, it seasons in our life, where we think we've kind of got this thing going. I'm okay. I don't need Christ that much. He's a great co-pilot. The suffering reminds us, no, we need him in the driver's seat. Suffering is also an opportunity to grow in personal righteousness. It sanctifies us. 
Suffering, fourthly, gives us a perspective on our reward. We just read from Scripture for this light and momentary affliction. What is it doing? What is this light and momentary affliction doing? What is the suffering doing in our life? It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is a reward for this. Now, that's not the motivation to do it, but we can't escape that in Scripture. There is a reward. But fifthly, I believe this is the main reason for the great tribulation. Suffering reveals the true remnant of believers. Suffering reveals the true remnant of believer. Scripture tells us that there are at least three events that must take place before Christ comes. The gospel must be preached to all the nations. The great tribulation and the revelation of the Antichrist and the great apostasy. The great apostasy. You see, for many seeming Christians, intense persecution is not worth it. That's what the intensification is meant to show. Where's the gold and where's the dross? The year was 1985. The country? Czechoslovakia. An Eastern Bloc country at the time behind what was known as the Iron Curtain. A group of 30 Christians gathered at a local home in hushed tones, getting ready to worship. Suddenly the door burst open and there stood 10 communist army officers holding submachine guns. They told the group to stand facing the wall and prepare to be shot. The Christians faced the wall and they could hear the guns being cocked. And a very strange thing happened. One of the officers said that anyone could leave and not be shot if they came and looked him in the eye and said they were not a Christian. Very slowly, one by one, 23 of the 30 did so and left. They heard the door of the house lock Footsteps, and then they felt hands on their shoulders. They turned around and found that the officers had put down their guns and were smiling at them. The captain stepped forward, stepped forward and said they were Christians and that they wanted to worship with true brothers and sisters in Christ. The purpose behind the Great Tribulation, brothers and sisters, right before Christ comes, is to reveal the true remnant. Intense suffering always does that. It always does that. You've probably had, I certainly have had, you have probably had people in your past that claim to be Christians who went through a terrible divorce or a terrible death or a terrible season of suffering and is no longer walking with Christ. Suffering separates. Persecution purifies. It does it personally in our lives and it does it corporately in the body of Christ. Theologian Jean Veith points out one of the greatest paradoxes in Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. Have you ever noticed that? When things are easy and good, 
That is when the church is most often goes astray, when Christianity seems identical with the culture around it, and even when the church seems to be enjoying its greatest earthly success, it is weakest. Conversely, when the church encounters hardship, persecution, and suffering, then it is closest to its crucified Lord. And then there are fewer hypocrites and nominal believers among its membership. Back in chapter 13, if you remember, in one of Jesus' prolonged teachings on the kingdom of God, he told the parable of the weeds. Do you remember the parable of the weeds? He allows both the wheat and the weeds to grow together until the very end, when it is separated. And the wheat is brought in and the weeds are burned. Brothers and sisters, Jesus talks, tells us that this is so, so that he can prepare us. One of the purposes of our light and momentary suffering is to prepare us for greater ones. We crawl before we can walk. We walk before we can run. We are being prepared for this. So let's ask ourselves a question. Are you prepared to stay in the room? Jesus tells us that we will be delivered up to tribulation and put to death. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, those days will be the most difficult for the church. I ask again, are you prepared to say, yes, I follow Christ at that moment? As we pray and mourn for those who have lost children in the recent school shooting, that terrible event makes us recall the prototype of that event, Columbine High School. That's where my mind went. In 1999, the first school shooting. And there, if you remember, there was a teenage girl named Cassie Bernal. And one of the school shooters pointed a gun at her head and asked her if she was a Christian. And she said yes, and he pulled the trigger. Ask it to you again. Could you do that? Will you do that? Jesus says there will be a time when we'll be asked that in various forms. Jesus continues here and says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Brothers and sisters, the great tribulation is cut short by the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ cuts short that time. It's the end of that time. Cornelius Plantinga wrote, The return of Christ is good news for people who live lives filled with bad news. Look with me at verses 23 through 28, where Jesus describes this time. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here he is, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ." And false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. 
See, I have told you beforehand. So if, you, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. One of my favorite movies we already mentioned, it's the 1968 version of The Planet of the Apes with Charlton Heston. In it, if you haven't seen it, four astronauts take off from the Earth in hibernation on a deep space exploration mission and awaken during a crash on a distant planet in a distant future. They find that on this planet a strange reversal has happened. The apes are the dominant species and the humans are the animals. Taylor, the main character, is captured and when he finally makes his way to freedom, the surprise ending is that he's been on earth all along, all the time, the whole time, the distant future earth. No one knew he had returned. Not even the main character. There's a, there's a fear, I think, in the Christian church, a subtle one, but I've, I've, I've felt this undercurrent for the 40 years I've been a Christian, that you can miss the coming of Christ. Did he come? Has he been here? Did I miss it? Like the, like, like the Pharisees and many did when he came in his first advent. And by the way, that, that fear has been here since pretty much right after Christ rose from the dead. In, in 50 AD, barely 20 years since he rose and ascended, Paul had to write a second letter to his dear church in Thessalonica because they had fallen prey to this. And he writes this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposing to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And he writes, don't let them deceive you in this way. He's saying that he hasn't come yet. And don't listen to any reports. And don't listen to any letters. Don't listen to people who say he's come again. Jesus is, is telling us here the same thing. That will never be the case. You will never miss Christ's second coming. You will not miss it. You cannot miss it. He uses a couple uh, uh, metaphors here that it will be unmistakable. Like when you see vultures circling, you know that there's a dead body down there somewhere. Or he uses another one, like lightning in the sky. Do you ever miss lightning in the sky? Do you ever hear that, see that lightning and, and hear the thunder and go, gosh, what just happened? You always hear it. If the Litchfields were here this morning, are the Litchfields here this morning? They are here this morning. They heard, they saw a lightning bolt barely 20 20 yards from your house. Did you miss it? There's no way to miss it. There's no way to miss his second coming. 
And again, Jesus tells us this so that we can live faithfully. Because there will be alarmists that will come. Because there will be false teachers and false prophets that will tell us he's come. Because there will be people who will claim to be him. Just like Anne Lee, the founder of the Shakers. Just like Cyrus Reed in the 19th century. Claimed to be Christ. Gathered people around him. Just like people who followed Sun Yat Moon claims to be the Messiah. Jim Jones claimed to be the Messiah, gathered a thousand people to their deaths. Charles Manson claimed to be the Messiah. David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah. The name is Legion. Church, don't be deceived. When Jesus Christ returns, you will not miss it. It's going to come here and it's going to stop everybody in their tracks. Pastor Jeffrey Brown was one of the early disciples of R.C. Sproul at Ligonier Valley outside Pittsburgh when he started it in the early 70s. He writes this, Some will tell you that triumph will come by the development of human beings, the gradual evolution of their potentialities. That we should just give it time and wait and see and everything will come up roses. Will human progress stop people and nations from sinning? Will human progress and achievement ever wipe away all the tears from our eyes and heal our broken hearts? To ask these questions is to answer them. No, he writes. The final victory will not come through some natural progress of human development, nor through the religious forces that are operative in the world right now. The victory will not come by an improvement of the present order, but through its complete overthrow and supersession. The high point of human history will be the sudden appearance on the battlefield of of our captain of our salvation. And he will come in glory And it will be comparable to what John beheld in the Revelation. Look, I see a great white horse. And there is a rider on that horse whose name is Faithful and True. And there are many crowns upon his head. Brothers and sisters, you will not miss Christ when he comes back. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you've given us that surety. That the, that the great tribulation will not last forever. That it too is a light and momentary affliction. And you will bring it to a screeching halt by coming back once again to bring back with you the created order that you created it to be. Lord, we look so forward to that time. We end by corporately saying, come Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.